Well, turn with me, if you will, in Luke chapter 12 to verses, uh, starting in verse 35 through 48. Uh, if you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 871. Luke chapter 12, 35 to 48. Dear saints, this is your God's word to you this morning. I give your attention to the reading of it. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door for him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch, or in the third, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his house to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And so ends the reading of our God's word Uh, this morning. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Lord, as we come to your scriptures We are so aware that we don't have the faculties on our own to understand it, let alone submit to it and benefit from it. And so we ask that you would be with us and among us and that you would open your word to us, that you would grant us understanding. And most importantly, that you would grant us faith in and obedience to this most precious word. Help us to hear, to receive, and to practice all we hear, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. That's the warning that the Lord gave his people on the eve of the first Passover. 
For four centuries, uh, God's people had lived in Egypt. For four centuries, they had lived as, as strangers, exiles, and wanderers, foreigners, outsiders. For four centuries, they never quite fit in. They talked about their homeland, which none of them had actually ever seen. They, they longed to be at home, and yet with a, a, a strange lack of familiarity. For four centuries, they waited. And slowly, but surely, that, the awkward peace that they had established with the Egyptians began to fade. The, the collaboration between Joseph and the Pharaoh began to fade from memory. The debt that, that the Egyptians owed to the Israelites was forgotten. And all the Egyptians could see was, was the growing number of foreigners in their land, and, uh, and, and their minds were filled with fear. And that once functional relationship was, re, was replaced with suspicion and, and jealousy and hatred and, and eventually slavery. Those who had been rescued by God's people now enslaved God's people. Those who owed their existence to the Jewish people grew forgetful, they grew calloused, and they grew indifferent because the danger was past and, and the threat was gone. And so they began to mistreat God's precious children. And as they mistreated his children, they poked a giant, a sleeping giant. They stirred the anger of the living God. So God raised up Moses to go and to warn Pharaoh and the Egyptians what would happen if they didn't repent and change course. The Lord, the Lord would come and it would not go well for them when he did. And so he started by sending nine plagues. Nine plagues were sent as warnings of what was to come. Nine wasted opportunities to repent. And then God told Israel that the time had come. That he was sending his angel through Egypt to strike down all the firstborn. And as we come to Exodus chapter 12, God's warning comes to his own people. He doesn't look at the Egyptians. He looks at his own people and he says something like this. Children, judgment's coming. Death is coming. And you'd better be ready. Because if you don't prepare, when it comes, it will sweep you up with it. So prepare the Passover meal. Sprinkle the blood over the doorpost. Eat. Eat and wait. Don't go to sleep. Stay dressed and ready to go. What would have happened if you were there and you said something like this? <laughs> Okay, a little dramatic. You know, 400 years we've been here. I'm sure God will come. But we, but we have time. I'm beat. I'm tired. Maybe I'll prepare that meal tomorrow. I'm just going to get some sleep tonight. Yes, tomorrow sounds good. Or, or the next day. Or 
What would happen if that was your response the night the angel came? See, that's the image that Jesus wants his hearers to have as he tells them to prepare for his return. Um, Our passage might be summed up this way. Those who live as if Jesus might return at any moment are blessed. I don't know how how much more simple I can make it than that. Those who, who live as if he could return at any moment are blessed. And because they're ready. And they'll they will uh, be met not just with smiles from their Savior when he comes, their Lord, but with rewards and the very service of their master. Um, but those who, is, who live as if there's always more time, those who live as if they, they can live however they want and get ready later, they will be caught off guard and they will find a severe judgment when he returns. That's really what this passage is about. Um, it's been a little while since we've been in Luke. I, I won't say how long, um, but a while back, uh, we saw that Luke was, was making a transition um, from a focus on Jesus' signs and miracles and healings to actually his, his teaching. And so we've come into a portion where there's lots of teaching and parables and things like that. Before my vacation, uh, and, and then Isaac's candidating, and, and then my COVID. Uh, back then, we, we saw that Luke was uh, bringing a, a shift in Jesus' teaching to a focus on, on the end of time when Jesus will return to judge all mankind. And that's the context in which we find our passage. That's where we pick up today. And, and we will be, for the next couple of weeks, still seeing Jesus' teaching on his return and what to expect and how to prepare And so Jesus tells a parable. He says, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home uh, from uh, uh, the wedding feast so that they may open the door for him once he comes and knocks. He says, this is how you're supposed to live your life. In a very real sense, he says, your life is, is defined by waiting. And waiting is hard. I think it was that um, eminent philosopher Tom Petty who said, you know, waiting is the hardest part. And he was right. It is hard to wait. We, when we, we talk about waiting, we invoke that most dreaded of word that we all hate people to, to throw in our face. You know the word, it's patience, right? Did you know that the word patience comes from the Latin word to suffer? <laughs> Not really surprising, is it? It means to endure or suffer over a long period of time. When you tell somebody to be patient, what you're saying is, suffer well. (laughs) Wait and don't give up. Keep your focus on the end, on the prize, and do not be deterred. But we all know what happens when we have to wait. Okay, or maybe I know what happens when I have to wait. Someone tells me to watch a doorway, no problem, for about 30 seconds. And then you know what happens. Start to look there, look there, find some sticks to play with. When they don't come back for a while, we get bored. We look for entertainments and distractions. 
Because staying focused over a long period of time is hard. It's really hard. There's an old saying, you know it, idle hands are the devil's workshop. It's a fancy way of saying people with nothing to do get into trouble. Boredom breeds sin. In this parable that Jesus tells, the servants of the house are tempted to get lazy while their master's away. Now, initially that might be, you know, something like neglecting your duties. Uh, They're not cleaning the house. They're not maintaining the grounds. But eventually left alone in the house, they start to go through the master's things. They, They take liberties with the house that they would never take if the master were there. They start treating the master's things as if they were their own which is really to act like thieves. In fact, a better translation of of verse 39 might be something like this. If the master knew when the thief was going to rummage through his things, he would never have left. It's a parable. It's it's a metaphor. um, Because in in the parable, God is the master. He is is the, the owner. But he's not worried about us going through his desk drawers. He's not... Uh, He he doesn't have a safe that he's worried his children are going to start opening up and going through. In fact, Jesus will go on and explain what his possessions are that we are apt to misuse. So what are those? Well, look at verse 45. When he explains, he says, "Um, If that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. What Jesus has in mind is someone who mistreats his people. One servant who thinks he's the master and mistreats his fellow servants is what Jesus is talking about. Isn't that what brought God's judgment onto Egypt so many years before when they started to mistreat his people? Pharaoh and the Egyptians mistreated God's people and God says that's not okay. If you want to make God angry, mistreat those he loves. Now, history has seen uh, political leaders and and societies mistreat God's people. Uh, There have been small pockets in geography and history where where God's people have been accepted and even even respected. But but really, history is far more filled with antagonism towards God's people, allowing the worship of of anything so long as it's not the true God and imprisoning and and persecuting and, and abusing God's people. Mistreating those God loves. And this passage is a warning to those who would mistreat God's people. That God will hold them accountable. But before we walk away content to tell those around us that they better look out, better be careful, look at verse 41. Peter asked Jesus, "Uh, Lord, is this parable for us or for everyone? You got to love Peter. 
It's a fair question, uh, and it's a good thing he asked it because Jesus' response, uh, he responds by asking, okay, Peter, who's the faithful servant who wants his master to be pleased with him? Peter, are you my servant? Do you want me to be pleased with you? Peter, what do you want me to think of you when I return? You bet this is for us. It's especially for us. We are the servants in God's house who are tempted to grow bored and indifferent while he's gone. We're the ones in danger of getting into trouble. We're the ones who need to be on guard against distraction. When we stop thinking of God's people as belonging to him, as loved by him, we will feel far more free to mistreat them. Church leaders who think that the church is theirs are apt to abuse and mistreat the people, and God sees. Fathers and husbands who think God's call to lead means to to exercise unquestioned authority and a firm hand, need to know that God sees. This applies to all of us. Because we're all tempted to forget that those around us are loved by God. Dear to his heart and precious in his sight. It's so easy to guard our own egos, to judge anyone with a differing opinion, to think of those who are different from us as bad, and to show zero patience with anyone who frustrates us. And when you mistreat those whom God loves, you must remember that he will not be away forever. The master is coming back And what will happen when he does? He's coming when no one expects it, verse 40. Now, can we just pause a minute and and agree that any book that claims to know when he's coming back isn't worth the paper it's printed on? Any voice claiming to have inside information to the Lord's plan is deceiving you with one goal, and it's to separate you from your money. The only thing we do know with certainty about when the Lord is coming back is that we won't expect it. The Lord doesn't want us to worry about when. Far more, he wants us to think about what will happen when he does. Verse 46 is one of the most graphic images of God's judgment that I've read in the scriptures. When the master returns, he will cut those who abuse his people into pieces. He then lists out various degrees of judgment. Those those who failed to prepare for his coming will receive a severe beating. Those who were ignorant will receive a lighter beating. 
In other words, what he's saying is the more knowledge you have, the more authority you have, the greater your accountability. No one is exempt, but judgment will be more severe for some than for others. So how does the Lord call you to live? That is really the point and thrust of our entire passage. Our our passage begins with a command. Everything else is is explaining why he gives the command. But But the point of our passage is how to live. Live every day as if it were your last. Look at, look at verses 35 and 36. Stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are awaiting their master. Stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are awaiting their master. Beloved, the enemy is going to tell you all sorts of lies. He's going to whisper in your ear things like, he hasn't come back in 2,000 years and probably won't for 2,000 more. If ever. There's certainly more time. Those are things you can worry about later. There are so many more pressing matters to worry about. Work, family, and don't forget fun. You're dealing with so much. People who are treating you unfairly, toxic relationships. Don't you need just to focus a little bit on self-care, take some time for you. Later, when you're older, when you're married, when you have kids, when your life is more settled, when you've had your fun. But the enemy will always say, when, when, when. Then you can deal with the God stuff, and that goalpost will always move. It's no accident that Jesus' words, stay dressed for action, are a direct quote from the Passover. It's a direct quote from, from Exodus 12, 11. He knows exactly what he's doing when he uses those words. He's saying that judgment could happen at any time and it will sweep his people up if they are not prepared. And so we must live every day as if it were the Passover. Because if we would do that, then we will always be prepared and we'll never be caught off guard. It will come, and when it does, it will, it will come without warning. And so the question then is, okay, so what does living every day like it is your last look like? Does it mean knocking out your bucket, bucket list? Make sure you, you go skydiving. Make sure you go bungee jumping and do that traveling you were worried about. Don't go to work. Would you go to work if it was your last day on earth? No, of course, that's not at all what Jesus is saying. Uh, You probably have heard this quote. Martin Luther, years ago, was asked, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming tomorrow? Do you remember Martin Luther's response? He said, I'd plant a tree. What Martin Luther was saying was, because I live ready for my Lord's return, I wouldn't do anything different because I live every day as if he might come tomorrow. Living ready means first and foremost making sure that you are at peace with God, that your sins are forgiven. And it means not putting off the spiritual matters until later, but living like they are the most important things in life because they are. 
It means being about the Lord's business, which is first and foremost worshiping Him, but also includes encouraging your fellow Christians and telling those who don't know about God, telling them about Him. And it means loving and serving others above yourself. Because they are loved by God. And you would not want to mistreat those whom he loves. Now, if we're not careful, we're going to think, we're going to leave here thinking this passage only contains warnings and threats. And it contains those to be sure. But it's not actually where the emphasis lies. In fact, dead center of the parable and dead center of of Jesus' explanation of the parable in the following verses are promises. And and, and structurally, that's significant. And I'm not going to bore you with all of it, but, but it is important that they both actually center in and focus on these promises. In verses 43 and 44, Jesus says in the parable that the servant who lives ready for his master's return will be rewarded with all that belongs to the master. Jesus, the master, the servant who's faithful when his master gets home, he's going to give his servant everything he owns. What he doesn't take without permission will be given to him as his reward. You see, when you set your, your eyes and your heart on eternity, when, when you don't demand the Lord's blessing now, but you live mindful of his return, when you do all these things, his return will be a beautiful time when he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. All that I have is yours to enjoy. You see, on the last day, faithful servants will be treated as if they were the master of the house. They will inherit God's kingdom as full heirs. But all of this is because we have a master who became a servant. Look at verse 37. Blessed are those servants who the master finds awake. When he comes, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. Now remember, the image here is, it's the middle of the night. The master's been gone all day, a wedding, traveling. He shows up in the middle of the night. His servants are awake and he says, you guys go sit down at the table. I'm going to whip us up something to eat. Here the emphasis isn't on the blessing of the servant, but on a master who clothes himself as a servant and serves those over whom he rules. Now we know Jesus did this the first time he came. The God who created all things entered into his own creation and he clothed himself in humanity and he served those whom he created even to the point of of laying down his life to endure the punishment they deserved in their place. 
It's the most shocking event in history. The master becomes the servant. And this passage isn't about his first coming. This is what Jesus says he will do for his people on the last day. In other words, Jesus isn't done serving you. This is how he will welcome you into heaven. He will sit you down and dressed as a servant, he will serve you. I don't know about you, but that strikes me as wrong. Uh, Shouldn't I serve him? Shouldn't he sit on his throne so that I can praise him? Why would he serve me? It just seems backwards. But that's who he is, and that's what love looks like. And that's what awaits me on the last day. How could I not live every day between now and then serving him, loving him, and loving those he loves. Every Sunday, it's, it's, it's a, God calls us to slow down and, and to focus on these truths. In fact, he, he calls Sunday in his scripture, uh, the Lord's Day or the Day of the Lord, this very same thing he calls the last day, <laughs> the Day of the Lord. The point is we're supposed to see a connection between Sunday and the last day. We're supposed to see and even taste of that day every time we gather for worship. Is it really surprising then that the worship service ends with a table prepared by our Lord where he serves us? Where we see what it looked like for him to be dressed as a servant for us, as a a taste of what we will see again on the last day. And here, even here, there's a division between those who are ready and those who are not. And the point is to warn those who are putting off dealing with God, to warn them what awaits. And the point is not humiliation, but a merciful warning before it's too late to answer the Lord's call to come to him for grace and mercy and forgiveness. And to those who have already done so, he invites them to this table where he serves them and he feeds them as an anticipation of what he will do on the last day. So beloved, come. Come and be served by your king. Taste of the last day and the blessing that will be yours when your master returns. Heavenly Father, who are we that you should serve us? Who are we that we should be heirs of all that is yours? Your grace is too wonderful for words. It's beyond comprehension. And yet, we know it's who you are. You are kind and you are gracious. You bless your children, those whom you love. And our heart's longing is to be more like you, to serve rather than demand being served. To love as we have been loved. 
We ask that you would teach us to live each day as if it were our last. Teach us to live with eternity in view, to always be ready. And in this, we ask that you would be glorified. May you increase even as we decrease. Amen.